You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. A leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is Virgil Shepard, president and CEO of the Hope Partnership for Education in North Philadelphia. Virgil, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here, Laura. Now, I have to tell everybody out there, I'm particularly excited to have this conversation today because Hope Partnership for Education has been around for 20 years and more, and I have been involved with it from the beginning. The founder was a colleague of mine, and it was amazing to watch what was built from the ground up and the nature of what was created. I mean, there's educational programs, there's schools, there's community partnerships, there's all sorts of stuff of all different shapes, sizes, and colors, but none that I've ever seen that has created the amazing results that Hope Partnership has gotten, where it started, where it is, who it serves, and how incredibly well. So I want to invite Virgil here to join us today to share what it's been like and where where it's coming, where it's going, and the challenges of getting there, frankly. So without any further ado, Virgil, give us your elevator pitch. Tell us about Hope Partnership for Education. Hope Partnership for Education is an education center that encompasses a middle school and adult education program in North Philadelphia. For context um, of the viewers, we are in one of the poorest zip codes in Philadelphia. The average household income is around $11,000, in addition to one of the lowest adult graduation rates in the city of Philadelphia. Now, before you go on from there, I want to make sure that people heard that correctly, that that's, this is not out in the middle of rural anywhere. This Not that it would have been a lot of money there either, but this was smack in the middle of a major metropolis city. The made average household income is 11000 correct? Yes. Okay. So yeah, that would be challenging. All right. So go on with that. When our founders came up with the concept, they did a lot of research. And one of the things that they, they were researching was the community that they wanted to sit in. And they chose this community because of some of the statistics that I mentioned before. They also did a lot of due diligence in terms of reaching out to the community to identify the needs. And what that did was influence our model as a whole. And what that means for and looks like for us is we're a middle school uh, where we serve grades five through eight. We want students that have had challenges in previous stops. We want to be a safe haven. We want to be a beacon of light. We want to support them. In addition to, as we talk to the community, one of the other things that came out was the adults needed education as well. So we're centered here. We want the toughest of the tough because we feel like we can do a good job with them. But we also are created with the community in mind and community voice at the heart of what we do. Just a short, really short story. I mean, the name Hope came from our founders actually doing some of the community engagement work. And one of the things that came to light was she, she asked, what, what should we call this neighborhood? What should we call this community? And for those that aren't local, Philadelphia is a city of neighborhoods. So it's an important question. And the response was, just call us the community of no hope. And with that being said, the name Hope Partnership for Education was born. 
Which is such a powerful story. And and to just clarify a couple of the phrases that you use for those who aren't either out of the educational world or may, I honestly don't think that this power of the model is necessarily that obvious, but it's one thing to say we're going to work with the, we want the toughest kids or the biggest challenges. But in the educational community, we talk about at-risk children. And when there are metrics and specific statistics and categories that identify what children are considered, quote unquote, at risk. And if I'm not mistaken, correct me, Virgil, if this has, if I'm inaccurate in any way, but we're talking about who is at risk, who's most statistically at risk of not finishing school, of not graduating high school. And in particular, the children who are qualified to be accepted, because it's not just a local middle school that takes whoever's in the in the catchment, whoever's in the vicinity, but there is an application process and all. And the students who are selected are the ones who are at greatest risk for dropping out of school or otherwise not completing school before fifth grade. Is that correct? That's correct. That's correct. And, you know, part of the application process to kind of rehash what you just said, Laura, or reinforce what you just said as well is we understand that risk portion. Um, and that risk means a lot of things to a lot of people. For us, we're looking at our early warning indicators. We're looking at grades, students have B's or F's in reading or math, students have had some challenges with attendance, you know, attending less than 90% of the time. And students that have had negative comments on their report cards. What kind of negative comments? It could be around on-task behavior or not. It could be around overall conduct in general um, in the school setting. And then that's one criteria. And the other criteria is we believe in partnering with families. So we just need a caretaker that says, hey, we, we believe in what you're doing. We think this is a good fit for our young person. And we're going to partner with you to ensure that we are on top of things and have a, a young person on track to graduate on time and, and be able to enjoy some post-secondary success as well. And with those early warning indicators, I think it's, you know, every kid has some challenge somewhere along the way. But when you start to stack, when you're adding them one on top of the other, I think is where that cocktail of challenge comes in that's going to potentially poison a child's potential to finish school easily. You mentioned earlier families that are where less than two-thirds of the adults in the community have finished a high school education, which of course indicates their literacy level may not be ideal. So can they help kids with their homework? Can they help? Can they provide the, the resources at home that they need? Is Are there books? Are there other materials? If the median household income is $11,000, then okay, well, what's going on with work? Where are the parents or where are the guardians or who's home taking care of the kids? Probably other kids. Well, that is going to impact the attendance rate. That's going to impact. There's all of these things can snowball one on top of the other. And so it's not just that, well, is the kid going to get to 11th grade and drop out? It's, are they going to finish elementary school? That's 10 years old, 10 years old before dropping out the likely. I mean, that's unbelievable. So the fact that you're identifying the children at that age and saying, before you exit, we are your second chance. And we are not just a chance. We're going to get you there. What's your completion rate? We have a four-year graduate from our alumni of about 96%. Um, we outperform the school district students and graduates as well, which we're really proud of as well. So at 96 from kids where the entire population is those who are at greatest risk of not completing fifth grade to having a 96% high school graduation rate. And how many of your alumni go off to college or some sort of post-secondary education? 
post-secondary education, 80% of them have gone on to post-secondary education as well. We're actually doing a deep dive on some of the long-term data, but we're really proud of kind of what we've been able to accomplish in a short period of time. Yeah. So if that doesn't tell you out there, everybody, that this organization has figured out how to address, how to figure out who their target audience is and what the needs are and how to meet it, the leadership that that requires, the insights that requires. And then we're going to talk about other stakeholders because it's not just about families and teachers at that point. So let's let's dive in and figure out how this works because this there's a whole lot of layers. I hate the onion metaphor. It's so overused, but I'm going to use it anyway. There's a lot of layers to this onion. So let's start peeling back. Virgil, what's one of the big issues of the day and how do you have to adjust your approach when you're talking to different key stakeholder groups about it? That's a great question. Right now, for me personally, as the leader of Hope, one of the big issues, for, biggest issues for me around communication is around how I communicate our community and the values of our community members. Am I doing them justice? Am I portraying them as, as they are? So for example, I gave some statistics in the beginning around some of the poverty that exists in this community, but there's a ton of assets in this community as well. The fact that one of our qualifying factors here at Hope around acceptance is around the ability or the willingness of a caretaker to be participants in the process, the educational process, demonstrates that there's a ton of caring in the community as well. So for me, as a leader, one of the biggest things that I struggle with is I understand that we're in an impoverished community and there are some challenges, but there's so many gifts. There's so many strengths. There's so many assets. There's so many great people that live in this community and have been a huge help for us. And I would imagine that there is a, a sensitive line that has to be walked very very consciously, very mindfully, very deliberately of understanding when you need to lean more towards one side or the other. Because, you know, who, for example, who are some of your major stakeholder groups? Obviously, parents and teachers. Beyond that? There's funders. We are a nonprofit organization. So there are a lot of funders that, you know, people that give to to hope. Um, And so we have to communicate who we are, what we do, who are our constituents, who are the people that we service. You know, an example is us thinking about deficit-based language as opposed to asset-based mm. language. How are we painting accurate pictures? There are some families at Holbrook. I mean, I believe our families are amazing. I believe there are some struggles that come um, and we deal with them together. But how do I message that? How do, how do we message that to our funders and people that are, you know, supporting us financially? It's so interesting to think about how to accurately describe the nature of the challenges that the families face, because if you aren't clear about the severity of these challenges, then the donors are going to say, okay, so what's the big deal? And you need to make sure they're crystal clear on exactly why so many resources are being requested, the kinds of donations we need, because you are a private school and it's not a public school, it's not a charter, it's not something more typical along those lines, students are their own scholarship. But at the same time, we don't want to define the children by their challenges. We don't want to define the community members by their challenges and want to make sure that it's equally clear that they're like everybody else. We're all people. We all deserve these opportunities. We all et cetera, et cetera. So to know when the pendulum in conversation needs to swing to focus on, well, are we 
trying to focus on how they're just like everybody else and not different versus know why they are different and what that does with promotion and, and marketing and development language. I would think, am I off on this or? No, you're, you're on basis. I mean, and sometimes it's not even describing who we serve, but I think some of the systemic challenges that exist, mm. many of our supporters are well-intentioned and have been long-term supporters. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they understand some of the systemic inequities that exist and how that's influenced our community as a whole. So, uh, you know, I find a lot of conversation that we have around poverty and some of the systemic causes of poverty and, and how we, you know, what's the vehicle to get folks you know, out of poverty? How do we do some, some of that work as a whole? So it's not only just our constituents, but it's the more complex problems that we also find ourselves having to you know, explain, not even explain, but I think educate on or iterate around or discuss with many of our supporters. What's one of the biggest misconceptions you find people have about the participants in the HOPE community? I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that people don't want to do better. Mm. People don't, aren't willing to work. People aren't willing to help themselves from circumstances. I and mean, that goes back to some of the systemic challenges that exist. The families at Hope are here because they want to do better. They are working really hard to ensure that the young people are educated and even our adult learners, like they're there because they want to do better. Um, many of our adults are in the programs without a specific goal of a GED or things of that nature. Some of the adults are here because they want to build skills, basic skills that they may have missed along the way. Like what? I would say a lot of literacy skills. Um, we have some adults that are in the program that have regular diplomas from Philadelphia public schools and still may be challenged with basic reading and writing and some other things. And they understand that and they have goals and they want to come back and better themselves. So I think as a whole, one of the biggest misconceptions is that, you know, people that live in you know, our community may not want better. But what I do know is that there are a ton of people that want better. And that's part of we want to be part of the solution. And is there a particular way you need to correct those misconceptions when you're talking to different kinds of donor groups or other community partners? Or how do you address that in a way that is tactful, but still poignant? I think part of it is a work in progress. Sure, um, It's something that I continue to iterate on, but I think still having the conversations and also doing some internal work about our stance and who we are. We're actually doing a deep dive now with the new team development team around our marketing strategy. Mm. Like, is it clear, is it succinct? Um, where do we draw lines in the sand? What are some of those things? But what I would say overall to Laura related to that is the beauty of hope is we bring people from all different backgrounds together. Our supporters, our students, our families, our staff are from different backgrounds. And the environment that's been created here is an environment that allows people to share their individual backgrounds. So we want to continue with that. So whether it's with board members having an opportunity to spend time in a school or, or socialize with staff and things of that nature, we've been very intentional about creating those spaces so we can have some of the dialogue that needs to happen. First and foremost, we have to draw a line and see who are we, what are we doing, you know, what are our non-negotiables, and we're in that process now, but it's definitely a process. In all of this, who's the toughest audience that you ever had to get through to? In this current role, I think it is funders. We are in a time, as you, you're well aware, a lot of folks like to say a racial reckoning. Mm. We know that it's been, there's a lot of undertones and things that have existed forever. It's just kind of boiled over a little bit in new times. So we have some long-term supporters when we've taken a stance in some of those situations that don't agree 
with the stance. For example, I just had a person apply for an open position here and they wrote me an email after reading our equity statement saying, while I believe your equity statement is commendable, I don't share in your beliefs. So I want to withdraw from this application process. Interesting. Okay. So I say that to say that I think that we're in a space right now in the country where people are very sensitive about points of view. And I think people that are giving to institutions are more likely to walk away now based off of beliefs than they have been in the past. Wow. Wow. That's good to identify, especially if they're going to be working for you. If they're applying for a job there, let's let's identify where there's not a fit just as fast, if not faster than where there is a fit. That helps chlorinate the gene pool, shall we say. Absolutely. Now, What's an important lesson you learned when you first went from being an individual contributor to leading a team? There were a lot of lessons. I think the first lesson for me is... Now, this was not at Hope, right? This was at this a, was not at Hope. Okay. So prior to Hope, I worked for a nonprofit organization, a national nonprofit organization, and I had a really big team. The team was about 320 people in total. And what I learned was we had a ton of moving parts. So picture 320 people probably 35 different locations. So the amount of information that needed to travel in that space and the succinctness, we always had some issues with communication. So what I learned in that first lesson was that I had to find a way to be intentional about communication, managing the flow of communication, managing the volume of communication, and being intentional about what's expected from the amount of communication that was actually being shared. How much communication is too much communication? I think too much communication is when people don't miss the task-related pieces in the communication. And that began to happen for us um, as a big institution. And one of the things that we did was we sat back as a leadership team and we said, how can we control the amount of communication that's going to teams? It's all valuable. And then how can we code it? So the solution that we came up with was a weekly email that was coded and urgent. It was information. And then there were things that you could hold within the next two weeks. So it was information that you need now. It was things that had action attached to it. And then things that were relevant for the next two weeks. And we did that weekly. And the amount of emails, text messages, uh, and I'm going back to BlackBerry days. So just to let you know, the amount of BlackBerry uh, messenger decreased drastically. And then we also had a completion rate. We had things that needed to be done, tasks that were very important because we were grant funded that we saw an uptick in because of the streamlined communication plan. Yes, yes. Now, I think we can all empathize with the need, desire, and pleading on your knees to have there be less email, less fewer text messages, less overall communication, just have it be more focused. And frankly, the challenges of knowing that you've missed stuff because it just got lost in the avalanche. So that's unfortunately something way too many of us can relate to. Now, This brings us, Virgil, to the Influence Challenge of the Day, our listener 24-hour Influence Challenge. This is your chance to talk directly to our audience and challenge them to take one step that they can complete within 24 hours to have more influence. How would you like to challenge our listeners today? I would like to challenge our listeners to reach back to one person that has influenced you professionally, personally, and just tell them thank you. I believe that along the way, when you do this work, in leadership work, as many of you that are watching are in leadership positions, oftentimes we don't get thank yous and things of that nature. So I'm going to challenge everyone in the next 24 hours, whether it's a text message, a call, 
email, just reach back out and say thank you. Beautiful, beautiful. Spread a little bit of happiness and a little bit of appreciation. Boy, is that good social capital. You know, a little bit of thank you can go an awful long way. All right. Now, what is a communication-related mistake that you've made? And if you could have a do-over, what would it sound like? So this one is pretty sensitive. It's one that I think about a lot. Uh, Again, in my prior role, I worked for a large organization, nonprofit as well, where we you know, we prided ourselves on civic engagement. We prided ourselves on just really values-based education and support. And so during a tree by Martin murder, I sent out a communication to the staff, um, essentially describing what I felt like needed to be said at that time. And what I learned was it probably wasn't the best thing to do. It needed to be more systemic. It was very emotional. In addition to, it was not looked at by other folks. Um, no one else took a look at what I sent. Meaning before you sent it or no one read it after you sent it? Before I sent it. Okay. So there were people that received the communication. I, I didn't get anybody that responded and said, what you just wrote was terrible. We're totally off basis. The response that I got was, but you missed this. And this wasn't strong enough in terms of my stance. Whereas I, you know, before I sent it, I'm looking at it, I'm saying, is this too strong? And I think the, what I got from a response perspective from many of the folks were, this wasn't strong enough. And what's your stance? And so, you know, I've reflected on that over the years and the struggle in a situation like that is one, working for an organization that receives funding from everywhere um, but also prides itself on diversity of everything you could think of, you know, religion, uh, sexual orientation, all those things, uh, political. Um, we were a political organization. It was our tagline. Like we don't get involved in politics. And so what I learned from that is one, never send anything where you're emotional. Um, that's first and foremost. Two, when you send organization wide emails that are of that nature, you probably need a system in place where there's multiple eyes on the communication that goes out. And that's something that has become practice for me personally. You know, I adopted it immediately and I can pinpoint where I adopted it at. And it's been very helpful for me moving forward. But it's something that I still look back on and I, because I don't know if anybody felt right about just the situation in general and, you know, what needed to happen at that point in time. I think that's, I mean, those kinds of situations, Trayvon Martin being just one and sadly way too large number of, of incidents where they're so sensitive and despite best intentions in wanting to address it and to reach out to your people and let them know that you care and want to serve everybody's needs, one person's eyes just can't be enough that they need to have multiple people give some input, offer a little bit of feedback. You know, what did I miss? Kind of co-draft it, co-collaborate. And, and you'll never make everybody happy. There'll always be somebody on one end who says it's too strong and somebody on the other end who says it's not strong enough. So, you know, I don't think there is perfection, but at least if I'm hearing you correctly, it's the idea that multiple sets of eyes can try to cover as many bases as possible and get as close to perfect as you can. That's correct. That's correct. And it's a system, like I said earlier, Laura, like I've adopted to today, um, where there will be multiple people there. Also, I I probably, I didn't mention that earlier. It was the first time that I was in a situation as a leader 
one of the first times where I felt like I have to do something. And that probably contributed to my hastiness in that way. But you still need to be able to build a system that helps you communicate what you're actually trying to convey. Yes. And of course, under situations like that, time is also of the essence because with everybody being so hyper sensitized in the moment for good reason, that Mm -hmm. every second feels like an hour. It's like, what are we waiting for? Where's the response? Where's the direction from leadership? Where's the, the guidance? All this. So the delay feels interminable. And at which point that doesn't look good either. So that is the perfect segue to Laura, because that's the downside of this new system. That's the feedback that I've gotten around that is like, when you're going to send something, when you are going to send something, because we are taking our time now to you know make some decisions, you, you've touched on the other side. I think there's an upside and a downside to many things in the leadership and communication world. But that's some of the feedback that I've gotten around things that have kind of occurred since then. Under those kinds of situations that are that you know mission critical, urgent, and God willing, there won't be any others, much less many, but, you know, that being ideal, would it be worth sending out sort of a preliminary acknowledgement message just saying, you know, we're here, we're seeing you, we will be in touch very shortly, but with something more comprehensive. But for now, know that we hear you, we see you, we care about you, and we're working on identifying the best solutions for everybody. I think you are moccasing me, um, (laughs) following me, because that has become part of my process, in particular, in particular, to a situation that is more emotional, where I'm able to say, hey, I know I've seen the news or I've witnessed what things on, I'm working on gathering my thoughts before sending out something more detailed. And it has been well received. It's been well received in that way. Good, good. And I can only imagine that it would be. So that's not surprising at all. I'm sure you've done it exceptionally well. And what's an approach that you've used to address an accountability issue with somebody on your team? So one of the things for me around accountability is I believe personally that for you to hold someone accountable, you have to deliver high bits of support. So there's high levels of accountability, high bits of support. In particular, in my former role, I had a staff member who was struggling over time. Um, They had gotten progressively worse And so I always start with the personal side. We're having regular check-ins. We're having some things going on. I want to check in with you personally to make sure you're okay. Are you okay physically? Has anything changed? You know, anything outside of work that I should know about just to kind of be able to support you. Um, I had one particular staffer who I felt like performance began to diminish. um, And through coaching and through support, um, we came to the conclusion that it was time to go. That person, I remember distinctly, walked into my office and said, you know, last few months, we've talked a lot about it. And I think the real issue is that it's time for me to move on. Like, I really have some other things that I want to do. I felt very comfortable here. And I think I'm just avoiding moving on. I'm happy to say that that person moved on. And not only did they move on, they're doing exceptionally well. And they're actually running some programming for hope through a phenomenal job that is more rewarding. And when I see him, when he comes in, I hope it's the biggest smile that I've ever seen because he's he's in the right place and he's also being able to help our community. So it's a great story. High levels of accountability, high levels of trust, but I always start with the personal side and the caring side to see if everything's okay with that person. Yes, I think the, is it Howard Newton who had was known for saying that 
tact is the ability to make a point without making an enemy. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And it sounds like you've mastered that art, the ability to have that accountability conversation and inevitably more than one of them. But when it's you know getting them to realize that it's time for them to move on and being able to mutually arrive at that decision, to agree upon it and to be able to part ways where there's no hard feelings. We just have realized it's this is where things need to go, where we're, our paths will divide, but to still maintain the relationship in a way that is mutually supporting and and beneficial. I, I think that's really beautiful. Congratulations on that success. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, as we move into an increasingly hybrid workplace, which I'm sure has its own whole Pandora's box worth of impact on an educational organization, on a school in particular, and look, if we're dealing with families and households that are average annual income. I'm guessing high-speed internet is probably not something that's on the top of their monthly budget list and lots of newest generation computers and all that kind of stuff in the household either. What's one of your concerns or one of your pet peeves in that space? And what's your ideal solution? Well, I don't think I've come up with the ideal solution yet. But one of the things that is a big concern for me is we're an organization where we have people that provide direct service to young people and and adult learners. And then we also have people that do a lot of the back office work, foundational work, operations work. It's a lot easier for folks that are doing some of the back office work and and operational work to work remotely than it is for someone that's providing direct service. And by direct service, you mean education, instruction? Yeah, teaching, right. counseling, you know, all the extended day, all those things sure. that we, we provide here. So one of the things that we're really working through is developing a policy around it, because if I have to come in every day and I'm providing direct service, but you can work from home, is there equity around that? So that's a big discussion. The second piece is this idea of fostering an environment that is like team oriented. And so if you're not here and we have a team meeting, but you're remote, like, do we still get the same, you know, things done in the team meeting? So these are all things that we're wrestling with as an organization. Full disclosure, I worked remotely for four years and my boss was in a completely different state during the four years. Um, right before I came. And I think the reason why it worked for us is because we had some technological capabilities and some norms around technology that really supported us. And so I want to bring some of that here um, around utilizing the technology platforms to make sure that we get what we need to get done. So even communicating through the various platforms that we have was a process, all those things we, we kind of mastered and it was seamless. And then I came here and we weren't quite up to speed in terms of some of the technological capabilities necessary. And the four years that you were working remotely, in especially in contrast to, to where your boss was located, that was pre-pandemic. That was several years pre-pandemic. So that yes, was... We had some practice. Yeah. Yeah. You were definitely ahead of the curve on that front, which I'm sure helped when the world did suddenly go virtual all at once, kicking and screaming or otherwise, to at least be able to say, we got this under control, we can show you how to do it. Now, if somebody at Hope wanted to move up into a more senior leadership role, regardless of whether they were direct instruction providers, teachers, and other educators, or back office, et cetera, aside from their technical skills, what's one skill they'd have to demonstrate to you and why? I think the one piece that's really important for us is being able to really be invested in other people's success. 
I think that if you are selfless in this work um, and in this work environment, you're able to just, you know, help us be successful. So it's not I, it's we. My son is playing high school football right now and on the back of their t-shirts, they have a we is greater than me, um, which continues to ring home. So if someone wants to move up and hope someone wants to advance, I think participation in things that we have here around committees and other things are good ways for us to kind of gauge the willingness and the, the ability to lead a team and to also advance as well in, in selflessness. Now, finally, Peter Drucker famously said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. What's one communication pattern that's had a big cultural impact on your organization, positive or negative, on some team that you either were on or led? I would say, as I mentioned earlier about the weekly email, when I think about just over-communicating and, and not having a rhyme or reason or a cadence of communication, it sends messages to many of our staff that may be on the field around how we value their time or not value their time. So when I think about just, you know, kind of implementing a weekly email that basically said, we want to save you time, but we also want to help increase productivity um, and be respectful of all the things that you may have going on during the week. So I think that was really helpful with driving some of the culture that we wanted to drive an organization I worked at previously. You know, Virgil, my biggest frustration with this particular interview is only that I have to cut it short at this point, even though there's so much that I don't feel like people really understand about Hope Partnership for education and why they need to learn more about it and understand the incredible work that you are doing, the incredible changes that you're affecting. Where can people go to learn more about you and about Hope Partnership? You can go to hope-partnership.org. There we have all the information. Um, it'll give you our history, our story. Um, it has an email address for me in addition to anybody else that you want to talk to on staff. So go there. If you want to donate, you can also donate there as well. And I hope you do, everybody, go out, check out the website. Again, we'll, of course, put it in the show notes so that you don't have to stop the car right now to uh, make a note for yourself. We want you to be safe when you're driving. But as I mentioned, I've been involved with Hope Partnership for over 20 years at this point, and it's just an organization that's particularly close to my heart. And I think the more you learn about what they are doing and see these beautiful little faces on the screen, it'll get close to yours as well. Virgil, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Laura. Thanks for having us. And just thank you for all the work that you've done for Hope. And to everybody else out there listening in, thank you. As always, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode if you haven't done so already. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and your platform of choice so we can help even more people increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And finally, of course, if you want to download my free guide for equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. 
The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.